Well, uh, just to reiterate it, um, we want RUF to be a place where it's okay to not be okay, um, on a campus where it's not okay to not be okay. Um, and so hope that that is the, the community that you find here, that um, this is a place where you can um, not be okay. Um, uh, so tonight, um, we are going to be talking about obedience. Um, and that is, like, alarms might have just gone off in your head when I said that. Because um, when you hear obedience, right, what do we think of? We think of dogs or, like, unruly children, right? Uh, n- obedience has this really negative, negative connotations to us. Um, but we do also talk about obedience as a good thing sometimes. Um, and, uh, like, Sprite, they've built their entire marketing off of this, right? Obey your thirst. Um, and it's also, it's, it's positive. It's, it's ne- obedience is necessary for all human institutions and relationships to work. It is a necessary good for all human institutions and, nece- and relationships to work. good example of this is basketball. Basketball only works when people obey the rules, right? If you were playing basketball and you decided you weren't going to dribble and you weren't going to pay attention to out-of-bounds, and hey, you weren't even going to pay attention to the baskets, right? It wouldn't work because that's not basketball. Basketball needs the rules, and if you disobey the rules, right, you get penalized. Either it's a turnover or um, you get a, a foul. Like, there are rules that we obey in order for the game to work. Um, like, all right, who watched the game last night? All right, what would have happened if uh, at the end of the game, Chris Jenkins for Villanova had decided to disobey um, the, uh, the clock and say, I'm just going to wait an extra five seconds before I take this shot? Right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't have counted because we obey, obedience is, is wired into the world. Right? It's not just basketball. It's any game you play has these rules. It's um, – uh, think of traffic, right? We obey traffic signals together. Um, if we don't, then we'll all hit each other. We obey speed limits most of the time, generally obey speed limits. Right? If we didn't, if you drive too slow, you'll get hit. You drive too fast. Um, I think you get pulled over sometimes when that happens. Um, Happens in family relationships. I obey my marriage vows. Um, Just five minutes of disobedience could destroy eight years of marriage, right? Obedience is very important. Um, It's a good thing. It's a necessary thing to live as humans. And this word obey, this is something the Bible understands. And this word obey in, in Hebrew, in the Bible, also means, can be translated as hear or listen. So it connects actually hearing something to obeying it. Like, if you actually heard the rules, you're going to obey the rules, that sort of, that sort of thing. And inherent in obedience is risk. Because when you obey something, you relinquish your autonomy to an outside authority. And the risk in this is that things might not go your way. But with obedience, there's also potential for great reward. Um, so there's inherent risk in obedience. There's also potential for great reward. So we're going to read Ruth chapter 3 tonight, and we're going to see this um, relationship with risk and obedience in this passage. Um, but before we read that, I want to catch us up to where we are in the book of Ruth. If you're unfamiliar with it, um, Ruth is a book in the Old Testament. And um, as we've been reading the story of Ruth together, we've been asking the question, how do we live lives of love in a world of broken relationships? And that's what the book takes on, that theme. How do we live lives of love in a world of broken relationships? And Ruth itself is a love story. It's a story of love, and it, it, it frames this one word that we're going to see in this passage as the word kindness, this word hesed, which is a Hebrew word meaning it's combining loyalty and love together. So like steadfast love, um, loyal love, lo- love that's an action that, that doesn't have an exit strategy. Um, 
And um, so what we've seen in Ruth is in the first chapter, we meet Naomi, who's the main character, and she gets married, and she has two sons, and there's a famine. She lives in Bethlehem. She goes about 100 miles east. It's like walking to Raleigh from here. And um, she goes to Moab, which was Israel's enemies. And she goes there with her husband and her two sons uh, to find work because there's a famine in, in Bethlehem. And when they get there, the sons get married, and then all the men die. And so it's just Ruth and Naomi and Orpah. Um, Naomi with her two daughters-in-law. And then they decide to walk back. Orpah stays in Moab, but Ruth and Naomi make the trek back um, to Bethlehem. And when they arrive at the end of the first chapter, um, Ruth laments. She says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because I went away full and the Lord brought me home empty. And so the second chapter begins with Ruth and Naomi. They're widows. They are... um, uh, immigrants, they're poor, and they're living together in Bethlehem, and it's the time of the harvest. And so um, Ruth decides that she's going to go and provide for Naomi, Naomi. So she goes out into the fields to work. And as she's working in the field, she's like picking up, it's like collecting aluminum cans on the side of the road. She's just gathering scraps in order to provide for, um, for Naomi. And um, she meets this man named Boaz, who owns the field that she's working in. And Boaz sees her. He's heard of the story of Ruth leaving her home and coming and, and, and binding herself in love to Naomi to provide for her. And so he cares for her. He, he protects her. He protects her from the, dare, the dangers that are inherent in being a single woman working in the fields. Um, he uh, provides for her. He provides an abundance of food for her to care for her. And chapter 2 ends with Ruth and Naomi, with Naomi, Ruth working in the fields and said that they worked for about two months at the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And so that's where we op- open up in chapter 3. Um, that Ruth has been working in the fields for two months, caring for Naomi. Um, This is printed on your bright blue sheet if you want to follow along with me. We're going to read uh, Ruth chapter 3. This is God's word for us tonight. He gives it to us because he loves us. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest, rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning." So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, 
Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until how you learn the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word to us in this time we have together. Pray that you would help us to make sense of it, to see Jesus, um, to make sense of obedience. Um, Lord, thank you for the story of Ruth. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, tonight, as we look at this, there's an outline written on this back page, uh, the back side of the sheet. We're going to see the risk of obedience, the reward for obedience, and the source of obedience. But first of all, um, this is a crazy story. Right? This, is, this doesn't make sense. It's kind of weird what's going on here. You might have been in and out of paying attention because it's so confusing. Um, so basically what's going on in chapter 3, we see this in verse 1. Naomi is trying to get Ruth a husband. She's trying to get Ruth a husband. We see this when he sa- she says to her, um, I will seek rest for you. And rest here is an idiom that basically means let's get you hitched so you can live happily ever after to save her from poverty, to give her an heir. Um, marriage was as much of an economic reality, maybe more so than it was a, a um, romantic reality. So because she was a widow and because she was poor, getting, getting married would actually establish her economically, establish her family. Um, it would be a good, a good thing for her, um, that she would actually have wealth and not be left um, to being a poor widow. And so she hatches a plan, right? Naomi hatches a plan for Ruth. She says, go take a shower, uh, put on perfume, get dressed up in your fancy clothes, go to the threshing floor where Boaz will be and hide. And then after it's dark and he's stuffed full of dinner and wine, watch where he lies down, wait till it's pitch dark, sneak up next to him and then uncover his feet so he gets chilly and then lay down and wait. And when he wakes up because he's cold, he'll tell you what to do. All right. Um, interesting plan. So there are a handful of things that we miss while reading this as 21st century Americans. Um, and the first is that this story is filled with sexual innuendo. Um, first, this scene is first in the scene of the threshing floor. So verses six through 15, um, Ruth and Boaz are entirely alone. This is the only time in the book that this happens. And in the darkness of night and the secrecy of their meeting, they go incognito. I mean, look at verse 8. It's no longer Boaz and Ruth. It's man and woman. It's so dark that they can't even recognize each other. I mean, that's why Naomi says, see where he lays down before it gets dark so she doesn't go and uncover the feet of the wrong man. I mean, that'd be embarrassing, right? Um, So um, even God is barely mentioned in this. Um, He's unrecognizable. It feels like God is looking the other way in the story. And if you were an ancient Jew reading this story, you would be scandalized by it. Look at verse 4 with me. So first, go to the threshing floor. That's like saying, go out behind the gym or under the bleachers or go into the frat basement. Like, nothing good happens there. Um, Second, (laughs) uncover. Uh, This verb occurs in the Old Testament primarily in describing scandalous or forbidden behavior. So you can imagine uncover, like uncovering nakedness. Um, Third, feet. Feet was a euphemism for private parts. Fourth, lie down. I mean, come on now. I mean, this thing is just laden with sexual innuendo. Why? All right, is this just to hold our attention? Um, 
No, it's because the, the author is a phenomenal storyteller. Here's what she's doing. She's taking another well-known story from Israel's history, a story of deceit, and she's turning it on its head. She's taking the story of Genesis 19, which if you were an 11th century or 10th century Israelite, you would have that story in the back of your head as you're listening to this. Genesis 19 records the story of Lot and his two daughters. Lot's wife had died, and he was an old widower with two daughters. And out of the fear that um, they would not have children, that their family would die out, these daughters took this matter into their own hands. And as we said earlier, the risk of obedience is that when you obey something, you give up your own autonomy to an outside authority. And the risk in obedience is that when you do obey, things might not go the way you want. Um, and you've already given up the authority to change them. So Genesis 19 tells the story of Lot's daughters disobeying God and taking matters into their own hands. So they hatch a plan. They get their dad drunk, actually get him hammered, and they sleep with him. And they both get pregnant, and one of the sons that is born is Moab, who's the father of the Moabites, enemies of Israel. These are Ruth's people, right? The, the, The book of Ruth has labored to tell us who Ruth is. She is a Moabite. And both Genesis 19 and the book of Ruth are, saving, are solving the same problem. Both stories have a dangerous plan carried out by two women. One story is based on deception and disobedience. And Ruth's story is based on obedience to Hesed, to this faithful, steadfast love. And they both tell that, or Ruth tells that Moab is brought back into God's people. And what we learn in the last lines of the book of Ruth is that Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David um, and the direct ancestor of Jesus. So what is the risk of obedience to God? Um, Like we said, risk of obedience is the risk of not getting what you want. So where do we see risk in this passage? We see risk in both Ruth and in Boaz. Um, First with Ruth, she risks obedience to God with Boaz. She puts herself in this really vulnerable position with Boaz. And when he wakes up, she has opportunity to do whatever she wants. Naomi doesn't know what's going on, so Ruth could take advantage of Boaz, get pregnant so that he has to marry her, and like Lot's Lot's daughters, she could have taken matters into her own hands. Um, But instead, she risks this opportunity and is obedient to God. Look at verse 9. She tells Boaz to spread his wings over her, for he is a redeemer. Now, she's actually disobeying Naomi in this. Naomi just wanted her to get prettied up and to lay down and to let Boaz take care of the rest. But instead, she actually makes these demands on Boaz. So what is she demanding in this? Well, spread your wings. This is um, basically she's saying to him, marry me. Um, this is a marriage proposal that she's, she's having here. And um, even in 11th century B.C., Israel, women didn't propose to men. So this was like a risk that she's taking. And then she calls him a redeemer. Now, a redeemer is a legal term in ancient Israel. A redeemer was a relative who had legal responsibilities to their clan. So a clan was like a, you know, a network of families. Um, and their main task, the redeemer's main task, was to restore ownership of alienated family property through buying it back and to, um, to free family members from poverty. Or if they had, they had sold themselves out as servants um, because, or slaves because they were poor, the Redeemer's job was to go buy them back, to redeem them from slavery, to redeem them from poverty. And um, their job, they were recognized in the clan, and their job, usually a wealthy, 
a wealthy individual, their job was the restoration and the wholeness of the family clan. So by playing the Redeemer card, Ruth is in effect saying this. She's saying, I want you to marry me, but the only way that you're allowed to marry me is if you buy Naomi's property. If you release Naomi from her debt. Um, So this would have been an expensive marriage proposal for Boaz. So what is Ruth obeying in this risk? Well, she's obeying Hesed. She's obeying this love. Um, She's saying to Boaz, you can't have me unless you provide for Naomi too. Now, why is this a risk? Well, Ruth had the opportunity to get herself a husband, right? That's what Naomi told her to do. Go do this so you can get yourself a husband. So she had her opportunity to get herself a husband, to have her happily ever after. But instead, she risked all this and said no because um, she put her desires behind after she put Naomi's desires. She put Naomi's desires and her needs before her own. Uh, there's a show on ABC called Scandal. You may have seen it. It's also streaming on Netflix. I feel like I'm just a constant like advertiser for Netflix. Um, it's good. All right. So Scandal is a drama, and it, the central character is this woman named Olivia Pope, and she's a fixer. And so what she does, she's in D.C., and she fixes scandals that happen in Washington, D.C. And as you learn from the show, there are a lot of scandals in Washington, D.C., And one of the major themes in the show is that sex exists for two purposes. First, it is a tool to get other people to do what you want. So it's a tool of manipulation. Second, sex is a tool to get the pleasure you want. Um, And this is what we expect from Ruth. We expect her to use this counter to get what she wants and to get the pleasure that she wants, rather than seeing it as an opportunity for love, forgiving herself for another, and in this case, forgiving herself for Naomi. We expect her to use it as an opportunity for lust, to take from Boaz to get what she wants. And you know this tension because you live in it. Left to ourselves, we operate out of lust, seeing others as existing for me and then using them for our own gain. Lust and love are opposed to one another. Lust is about taking and love is about giving. Ladies, let me ask you this question. Um, Would Boaz be safe with you? Ask yourself that question. Would Boaz be safe with you? Would Naomi be safe with you? Or would you betray her for your own gain? And we see that like Ruth, Boaz obeys love and not lust. Look at verse 11. He says to her, And now, my daughter, do not fear. He understands what she has done in putting her desires behind Naomi's. He sees that she is motivated out of love, and he doesn't take advantage of her. He's not offended by her forwardness. He's actually flattered by it and and happy um, that she has done this. And then look at verse 10. Um, He praises her and he blesses her because of her kindness, which is this Hebrew word hesed, her loyalty, her love for Naomi. And he says that this act of kindness, this act of hesed is greater than the first. This act of love, her willingness to provide Naomi an heir by marrying a redeemer like Boaz is greater than the first act of hesed which was abandoning her home and family out of her devotion to Naomi, leaving Moab and binding herself to Naomi and to her God. You know, he says that she could have married a poor man for love or married a rich man for money, but instead she chose family loyalty instead. And Boaz says that she is a worthy woman. She's full of character. She's trustworthy. She's shrewd. She's generous towards those in need. And Boaz is a good man. He's an honorable man who's obedient to the love of God and not to his lust. 
And the scene ends in verse 13 with Boaz declaring, As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And they fall asleep. And this word for falling asleep actually has zero innuendo. It is the most like basic laying down and sleeping word possible. So um, they were honorable in this. And then before the morning, Boaz sends Ruth out with a bunch of grain for Naomi. And there's some wisdom in here for us. Um, if you flip over your bulletin, uh, there's a quote. Um, it goes like this. To all the girls who are in a hurry to have a boyfriend or get married, a piece of biblical advice, Ruth pat- patiently waited for her mate Boaz. That's actually not in the Bible. Anyways. Um, and while you're waiting on your Boaz, don't settle for any of his relatives. Broke ass, Poaz, lion ass, cheating ass, dumb ass, drunk ass, cheap ass, locked up ass, good for nothing ass, lazy ass, and especially his third cousin dumping your ass. Wait on your Boaz and make sure he respects your ass. I just had to read that. Um, Because it's amazing. So men in the room, let me ask you this question. Men in the room, um, would Ruth be safe with you? Guys, would Ruth be safe with you? Would you leave Naomi out of it? Right, She would never know. And get your kicks for the night? Deny knowing Ruth the next day? Y'all, obedience has always felt like a risk. Obedience has always felt like a risk. And Christians believe that the Bible tells this true story of the world, and in it the true story of risk. That God, eternal, unchangeable, without risk in himself, existing in perfect love and obedience to his character, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of love, he took a risk into himself. He created the world and everything in it, and he created us. He created us in his image, and this was a great risk to God because it opened the possibility of him being wounded, of him being hurt. And so the first humans, Adam and Eve, were placed in the Garden of Eden, and they were given the command to obey God, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent, we read, slithered into the garden and spoke to Eve and deceived her. And Adam and Eve, rather than risking obedience to God, Rather than relinquishing their autonomy to him, living in dependence and obedience to God, risking in this the possibility that things might not go the way that they wanted, rather than obeying God, they listened to the serpent. They ate the fruit of disobedience. They opted for the promise of safety and self-preservation rather than the risk of obedience. And in their pursuit of safety outside of God, they broke something in the world and in them. And the Bible calls this sin, listening to, hearing, obeying any voice other than God's. So we see this in Adam and Eve. We also see it in Abraham. Um, God made a promise to Abraham that out of his grace to him, he would make Abraham into a great nation. And rather than risking obedience and trusting that God would provide a child through his wife, Sarah, who at the time was really old, she's like 80, he listened to Sarah's voice and he slept with her servant, Hagar, and she bore him Ishmael. Rather than obeying God's word that he would provide him an heir, he obeyed Sarah's voice. Obedience has always felt like a risk. And we see this most clearly in the place where we see all things most clearly, in Jesus, who for him, obedience was a risk. That at the beginning of his ministry, in his home church, um, he announced his mission to the world, that he was the promised servant of of the Lord who would proclaim the good news to the poor and give sight to the blind. And when he announced this, his home church ran him out and tried to throw him off of a cliff. And then when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus was at the tomb and he raised Lazarus from the dead, obedient to his father's call to make all things new in himself. 
And the religious leaders responded by plotting to kill him. And finally, we see the risk of obedience most clearly on the cross, where where Jesus was perfectly obedient to his Father, out of his love for us, out of his love for you. And he took the punishment that your sins deserve with complete and total risk assumed unto himself. And for Jesus, this risk of obedience led to death. So where does obedience feel risky for you? Where does obedience feel risky for you? Is it with your schoolwork? Where not cheating feels like a risk because everybody else is doing it. And if you risk it, your grades might suffer. Or is it with rest? Um, Where taking a Sabbath, where taking a day to worship God and not work feels too risky because of how far you think you'd you'd fall behind in your schoolwork. Or is it socially? Where to not participate in gossip or slander feels like that you would risk losing friendships. Or is it with your body? Like Boaz and Ruth, where living obediently with your sexuality could feel too risky. That's not usually how we talk about risky business, is it? Um, So we see in Ruth and Boaz that there's this great risk in obedience, but we also see that there's this great reward in obedience. And I think the, the way to say it most simply is that the reward for obedience to God's love, the reward for obedience to God's love is that you get to be in on it. The reward for obeying God's love is that you get to be a vessel of it to others. Um, We see this here, that when you are obedient to God, he answers prayers through you. We see this twice in this passage. First in verse 9, verse 1, excuse me, Naomi says, Should I not seek rest for you? Well, in chapter 1, she prays for Ruth, and she prays that God would give her rest. And then in verse 9, Ruth asks Boaz to spread his wings over her. Well, in chapter 2, Boaz prays for Ruth, and he prays that God would spread his wings over her. Isn't that amazing that God answers the prayers of Naomi and Boaz through the love of Naomi and Boaz? So when you're obedient to God, he answers prayers through you. And when you're obedient to God, he accomplishes his work through you. And one of the purposes of the book of Ruth in the Bible is to answer the question, how in the world did a girl from Moab, the enemy of God's people, get in the lineage of King David? And how in the world did Ruth get in the lineage of Jesus? And the answer is that she was a recipient of God's love, she was obedient to God's love, and she was a vessel of God's love. This is because God carries out his work through believers who seize these unexpected opportunities as gifts from God. So what does it look like to be obedient to God's love, to be a vessel of his love to others? I'll share a story with you. Um, a guy named Jack Twyman, who was an NBA all-star who had it all. He had skill and personality and wealth. He grew up in Pittsburgh, had been a high school teammate of a black athlete named Maurice Stokes. And Stokes had played for a lesser-known college where his abilities had been overlooked by scouts. But Twyman's influence eventually brought Murray Stokes to Cincinnati to join the Royals and Oscar Robertson. This is in 1957, um, the Cincinnati Royals, uh, where he quickly became the Rookie of the Year in 57. And then the unthinkable happened. Maurice Stokes suffered a massive neurological episode caused by a collision with a Lakers player in which his head struck the floor. And he went into this unexplained, irreversible, coma-like state. And he had to be encased in ice to keep his body temperature below 104 degrees. The team was sold, and the new owners didn't want an invalid, so his contract was rescinded as well as his insurance. So he had no means of income. And in the next 12 years, until his death in 1970, Maurice Stokes became the single-minded focus for the life, life of Jack Twyman. 
because of the $100,000 a year it costs to maintain the life of Marie Stokes, um, that was totally beyond what his family could come up with. Um, Jack Twyman filed papers and became his legal guardian. And Jack saw the expensive health care costs and the management of his daily affairs, visiting him every single day, even though Maurice could only communicate by eye-blinking in response to questions. Being obedient to God's love can be as grand as this, as what Jack Twyman did for Marie Stokes, or it can be as simple as going out of your way to help somebody um, who's locked out of their dorm, or taking the time out of your busy day to help somebody with their homework, or um, as we're heading it into exam season, thinking of your friends who are overwhelmed with the threat of their papers and their finals, um, helping them with laundry, just doing these simple tasks to, to, be, to, to be obedient to love and, and, and giving love to your, your friends. And the revo- reward for obedience to God's love is that you get to be a vessel of love to others um, and that that obedience produces joy. The last section of this passage records Ruth going home to Naomi with like 75 pounds of grain. I assume it's like tied up on her head and she's carrying it home. And this is showing Naomi that Boaz will be good on his promise to redeem them. This abundance of grain is a symbol of joy. That God keeps his promises through the obedience of his people. And now you can imagine the scene. Let's say like five years after this happens, as they sit around and they tell this story to each other. The joy that they must have felt in knowing and believing and and not believing that God had worked through them in each other's lives. That it was through their faithful obedience that God had accomplished this work of love in their life. So how do they obey? Where do they get the strength to do it? Now, if you're a Christian or you've spent any amount of time with Christians, um, you might intuit the answer to this question. How do they get the strength? Where do they get the, the strength? What is the source of their obedience? Um, the Sunday school answer, as you might say, is that it's Jesus. And my son, Leo, is starting to get this. He's four. We're reading this Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible with him. And every, he knows at the end of every story, the answer is Jesus. Even if he's not paying attention, he can tune back in and say, it's Jesus. And I'm like, hey, good job. Um, right? We, we get this. Like, oh, God provides the strength to obey him. He is the source of obedience. It's his grace, not our strength, that supplies what we need to obey. And yet, in this story, God is conspicuously absent. He's barely mentioned in this story. We have one small hint of him in verse 13. If you look with me, Boaz swears by the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He swears by the Lord and he ties up his obedience in the life of God. As the Lord lives. Now, our ability to obey, to risk obedience, to receive the reward of obedience is a gift. And it's a gift that comes to us in Jesus, and it comes to us in and through his death and resurrection. Because to find life in the Lord, we must must first find death in the Lord. So what does this look like? Um, Well, once a month, RUF has a Sunday night gathering that we call Sunday Night Fellowship. And we sing a few songs, and we pray for one another, and a senior tells a story of how God has been at work in their lives while they've been at Wake. If you've never been, we'd love to have you. Um, Well, this past Sunday, Ellen Carey uh, shared with us, and she shared her story, um, which was beautiful. And um, in her story, she talked about coming to know the power of Jesus' death um, and resurrection in her own life. And knowing that he died, like that he he actually died. He was really dead. Air was um, not in his lungs. There was no beat in his heart. He was dead. 
and that in him death and sin had died. So that in his resurrection there is real life and that he has sent his spirit to those who ask for it and by his spirit he gives life and the power to obey. And it's as Ellen has found herself in this story, in God's story, that she said that she's begun to root out sin in her life and give it to Jesus, to put it to death in him. And as she's doing this, she told us that she's experiencing the joy of obedience, of receiving life from him by his spirit. And her life, like many of your lives, is a testimony to the reality that to find life in the Lord, we must first find death in the Lord. And so when we believe in him, when you believe that Jesus has died for your sins, you learn that obedience is not what you do to keep God from leaving you or what you do to try to make God love you. It's what you get to do because you know that he will never leave. I want to end with a story. Um, the movie Cinderella Man, uh, you may have seen it, starring Russell Crowe. It, it tells the story of a Depression-era heavyweight fighter named James Braddock. and He lives in New York City. And he comes home after failing to find work to find that his son has stolen from a butcher. So he takes Jay, the kid, back to the butcher to return the salami. And after they return, his, his son tells him that, that the reason he stole was because a friend of his, um, because their family couldn't afford to feed them, uh, the, the kid's parents sent him to live in the country. And so this kid was so terrified of being sent away because the family couldn't afford that he stole the food so that his family could eat. And Braddock, the father, says to the son, we don't steal, ever. Give me your word. And the boy responds, I promise. And then Braddock, the dad, says, and I promise that I will never send you away. And he offers him a handshake. And instead, the boy jumps into his arms, weeping as, as the father carries him home. And from this point forward, um, if or when the kid obeys, if he doesn't steal, it won't be because it keeps him from being sent away, right? It'll be because he knows that he will never be sent away. And the same is true for you. In Christ, obedience is not what you do to keep God from leaving you. It's what you get to do because you know that he will never leave you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the story of Ruth and uh, the beauty of it, the humor in it the deep truths it has, and we thank you that it points us to the obedience of Jesus, that um, he has obe been obedient for us um, so that you will never leave us. Lord, would you help us to make sense of this in our own lives as we um, stumbling figure out um, how to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.